this week, we are starting, this Sunday, we're starting a um, series, Questions for God. We got about six or so um, questions that we had. If you, if you haven't been around the past several weeks, uh, we took some time to ask or give you the opportunity to ask questions for God. They really kind of fell into two large segments. Uh, one was this kind of segment of curiosity, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, listen, no, no offense if you asked a curiosity question, uh, but we did kind of put all of those in a bunch and then set them to the side because there were about six questions that were heart-level, gut-wrenching at times. Um, oh my goodness, our people are dealing with this kind of questions, and this is, this is where we're going to start. We get to start actually with a doozy today. Um, the question for God that we have would be something like this this, this, this morning. Is it okay for a Christian to doubt? That's where we're starting. Isn't that fun? Aren't you? Not for me either. Okay, so let me say, give you a couple of things here. Um, there is a kind of doubt that the Bible talks about that's pretty clear. Um, Paul in Romans chapter 14 says uh, that uh, people in their struggle, um, in, in how they deal with things and how they understand things, they come to doubt and that which is not from faith is sin. So there is a kind of doubt that can lead us towards sin. James similarly talks about in James chapter one, when you go to pray, don't be double-minded. In other words, don't be two-headed. Uh, don't doubt when you pray. Instead, uh, 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 just be the kind of people, uh, people who when they pray believe God is going to do something. So there's a kind of doubt that um, is wrongly uh, um, uh, viewing the world and viewing God and viewing his promises and viewing his word. And I'm telling you, if that's the kind of doubt that you came into um, this morning with, let's take up the Bible like a sword and let's go to swinging and cut that thing down. Let's cut that down. There's a kind of doubt, and this is the doubt I think that was um, inherent in about the eight or ten questions that we got about doubt specifically. Um, there's a kind of doubt, though, that not, not that segment, but this segment over here that goes, God, I believe that you are, and I believe, I think, I believe, on my good days, I believe that you are who you say you are, but right now, I'm trying to lean into you, and into this, and into your kingdom, and into your promise, and I just feel stuck, like I'm trying to run through knee-deep mud or something, where I just can't make a kind of progress, or I just can't um, uh, uh, wrestle with this particular issue, so God, uh, just I'm trying to lean in, but would you help me? That's the kind of doubt that I want to address this morning. And so here in Matthew chapter 11, we're going to get started. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So this is, this is a good context. Matthew chapter 10, powerful context of ministry. And he finished this and he's going on to preach and teach. So good stuff is happening, right? Verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now, that's an important thing because uh, when he says, and when John, we're talking about John the Baptist, okay? Uh, so this is the forerunner of Jesus, the person who announced that the kingdom of God was coming and that the Messiah was on the way. And then when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, th there he is. I mean, he's got... He, He's, he's the Christ, and he's hearing about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples, and here's the doubt, verse 3, and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John's leaning into this, going, I think you are who you say you are. You are, 
you are who you say, right? You are? Right, right, you are, uh, right? He's trying to lean into this a little bit. And so there's the doubt right there. And so I do want to um, uh, offer a couple of things here as we get started to try to do some very practical thinking about who we are as a church and how um, this kind of doubt uh, in trying to lean into God in hard times, how this doubt plays out. So uh, let me just say a couple of things here. Number one, if you doubt, especially that kind of doubt that we're talking about this morning, if you doubt, you're in good company. It's John the Baptist. So let's just rehearse John the Baptist, okay? Uh, he's family with Jesus. Uh, Mary is related to Elizabeth, John's mother. They go to see one another. Luke 1, there's this whole scene. Um, John the Baptist leaps in the womb, all this kind of stuff. It's just powerful. So they're cousins of some sort. I don't know how they're related. Second, once removed. I don't know how it all went down, but they are related. So you've got John the Baptist who's family with Jesus, the Son of God. Pretty awesome right there. John goes on and he starts his prophetic ministry and he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent and believe the gospel. John chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter three. And he starts baptizing people. People start receiving that word and their hearts are open to, um, uh, the Spirit's movement and the kingdom of God coming. And so they start repenting of their sin and they come to John like, hey man, what do I do? John's like, you need to get baptized. So he starts, they're standing in a line in the Jordan River. He starts dunking people, dunking people. He looks up and all of a sudden Jesus is next in line. John's time out. I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. This is wrong. This is reversed. Jesus says to him, hey, for right now, Let's just, let's, let's just let this be to fulfill everything. John's like, well, you're the boss. Okay, so I baptize you in the name of the Father and you and the Holy Spirit, okay? And I don't know how that exactly works. But here, here, here John, when he baptized Jesus, the Son of God, is the first recipient of the revelation of the Trinity, because the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased. And John is clear that this is the Son of God here right beside him and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. So, I mean, it blows people's minds to think about God in that way. And John is the recipient of that first. Later in ministry, John chapter 1, Jesus is walking by. John has been preaching. He looks out and says, oh, you want to... There he is. There's the Lamb of God. There he is. He's the one who takes away the sins of the world. And in fact, the guy, he, that guy right there, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. Later in John 1, he actually sends his followers after Jesus. Don't follow me anymore. Follow that guy. Go follow him. John chapter 3, John, a powerful word. Oh man, let me tell you. He must increase, and I must decrease. This is John the Baptist, okay? So when we're talking about, if, you're, if you doubt you're in good company, we're talking about John the Baptist, family of Jesus, receiver of revelation, baptizer of the Son of God, declarer of the kingdom coming, forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. If you doubt, you're in good company. So what would cause him to doubt? Very practically, let's just walk through a few things. Um, maybe, just maybe, uh, the personal situation that he found himself in. Uh, when you think, see if this rings true for anybody, when you think that you're doing what you are supposed to be doing and yet life doesn't go the way that you think it's supposed to go, it can plant a seed of doubt inside of you. God, here I am, proclaiming the kingdom, 
baptizing the son. He must increase, I must decrease. Go follow Jesus. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why am I in jail again? God, here I am doing my best to pray for my kids and walk and uh, live out for them uh, the, the good news of Jesus and, and declare to them the truth. And yet somehow, some way, they've gone crazy. God, here I am sticking it out in this relationship. Here I am giving it all for my work, and yet it seems like the people who stab people in the back, they're the ones who advance, and little old me trying to live with integrity gets passed over. Here I am in this marriage again. I'm trying to live this out and walk this and be faithful in this, and yet the distance between me and my spouse just keeps going like that. What? The personal situation in which you find yourself. And when, the, when Satan comes along, he finds that moment right there. Satan comes along and says something like this. Hey, listen, if God was really good, or if he was really for you, you think you'd end up like this? Well, that is, that's just a seed. They plant it there. He's going to let it sit there, going to let it grow, but he's going to plant that seed. Personal situation. Uh, secondly, uh, John has been disengaged from ministry, and so if you've done something that you've done all of your life, and now you're disengaged from that because of a situation, that can be a place where the enemy plants a seed. He would say something like, hey, you've been put out to pasture here. You're of no use anymore. And so uh, for John's case, here he is locked up in prison. He can't go out and preach anymore. He can't do the things that um, he was called to do anymore. He's locked up in prison. He can't declare the kingdom of God to the people of Israel to prepare the way for the Messiah. And John's like, what am I doing here? As a pastor, I see this when uh, people step into uh, um, uh, kind of midlife is where a lot of this happens, where uh, for men in particular, their, their minds are, I'm 25, their bodies are, I'm not 25. For, for, for ladies who step into this scene, like, hey, I've been a mom, for instance, I've been a mom for so long, and now my kids don't need me anymore. Who am I really? I've, been, I, I, I've somehow been disengaged from this thing that I've known all along. And so now I can't do some of the things that I used to be able to do, and so should I do any of the things that I used to be able to do? Satan comes along. Yeah, that's right. You've been put out the pasture. No use anymore. Uh, maybe a source of doubt for John, maybe for you, is the physical environment that you face. I want to say this out loud because I think it's important. It's a good thing to recognize. Some people think, oh, here, here's our soul, our kind of spirit experience over here, the spiritual side of us, and way over here is the physical side of us, and never the twain shall meet. I promise you this. Our physical um, uh, well-being and, and um, environment has an impact on, or can have an impact um, on our spiritual outlook and vice versa. Okay, so it's all kind of meshed and mangled and put, put here together. It's, it, it's, quite, it's quite a thing, okay? It's not just two big separate things. That physical environment that John was facing was hard. It was lonely. It was, uh, he wasn't sleeping well. Anybody, your world gets messed up when you don't sleep well? All of a sudden, you find it harder to pray? Why is that? Because those two things are not completely on separate poles here. They're really uh, uh, this, this much more connected than, than we would give them, um, than we would normally think. So John and his physical environment, again, very difficult, um, uh, hungry. But jail back then, I grew up in Huntsville, okay? So as far as prisons go, I mean, you know, I, I was around quite, this is not that. So if you're thinking, oh, John's in prison, he gets three squares a day and there's a TV on the wall and a basketball court outside, this is not that. 
in prison in the first century was you got locked in a room. There's not a toilet. There's, if nobody shows up to feed you, you probably don't get food that day. He's hungry. He's lonely. He's not sleeping well. There's not a cot. There's not a bed. There's not a mattress, a pillow. They don't give you a blanket. He just, he just chained to a wall. That's all you get. So that's the physical environment in which he found himself. And the enemy comes along and says something like this. Satan would say, hey, wouldn't it be good for you just to kind of escape this for a moment and go to some happy place, some place where you are not here? And in your mind, you just let your mind begin to wander, and sometimes the enemy can help steer that, give you thoughts to help steer you to some really terrible places that disengage you from God. Lastly, um, isolation, because part of being in, in prison in that day was that you were disconnected from everybody. You were isolated. Proverbs 18 verse 1 says, um, he, who hates, he who isolates himself actually breaks out against all sound judgment. So you've got this lack, because you're isolated, this lack of perspective, this lack of perspective um, that, that you get from being around others. And Satan comes along and says something like, um, God, hey, listen, the reason you're here is because God has left you. Or maybe like this, hey, the reason you're here is God has left you because he doesn't really love you. So if you doubt and any of those sources ring true for you, I just want you to know you're in good company. But if you doubt, because there's a comma there, like if you doubt, comma, you're in good company, comma, not, not period, comma. If you doubt, you're in good company, but if you doubt, listen, you need to do what John did. And what did he do? He ran to Jesus. Look, if you will, back in verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples. So he sent a delegation, if you will, and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, hey, I, I really want, I'm trying to lean into you here, trying to believe you here in the middle of all of this chaos that's my life right now. Uh, you, you are the guy, right? I mean, you're the guy. You're, you're the guy, right? And, and some, if you doubt, run to Jesus. And again, I, I get it. Some of us, maybe in the room this morning, um, would feel like, hey, I'm not running anywhere because the chains that are on me right now, like John, have me locked up, bound up, and I cannot escape them. Which is why it's so crucial, I think, that he sent word by his disciples. I love the fact that John had a group of people that he could send off. And I think for everybody in here, I think one of the things that Jesus would put on his Christmas list for you would go something like this. When you're chained up and locked up in your doubt and struggling with life, are there some people who can go to Jesus for you? Even if you can't. Even if you can't. Would they do it for you? If you, if, if you doubt, you're in good company. But if you doubt, run to Jesus. If you can't get there, if you personally can't get there, is there somebody alongside of you who can help you? I, um, in this service, I don't know, two weeks ago, something like that, I kind of got off on a tangent about how important it was to sing together. Do you remember this a couple of weeks ago? I started talking about men and whatever. Okay, so if you were here for that, great. If you weren't, that's fine too. That's it, Okay. What, what I'm saying is this. I, I, the, re, the reason it stirred up in me is I was sitting... Um, right in front of a family, and Dad's holding his kid, and uh, Frank was up here leading the old rugged cross, and Dad was just blowing on that song. I mean, just pouring out. I was a little tired, a little distracted. I'm telling you, 
Him singing made my faith come alive. I say that to say this. In this room, in this room, when you stand and sing, especially you men, I just want to say if you stand and sing, when you stand and sing, you may be impacting somebody else's faith. In your small groups, in your Sunday school classes, as you're relationally tied in, there may be a moment where you are so bound down by the things that are going on in your world, so chained up that you need brothers and sisters around you to run to Jesus for you. If you doubt, run to Jesus. And if you can't get there yourself, man, send somebody like John did. Um, And instead of, I think this is pretty crucial, Uh, And what you will find is, instead of um, rejecting you in some way, Jesus actually, doubt becomes a doorway to greater intimacy. Why is that? Because if I run to Jesus with my doubts, um, what I find is the honesty of that conversation actually opens up um, more intimacy with him. The honesty that I bring to the table in that moment opens up to greater intimacy you would say, well, if I run to Jesus, for instance, he's going to disregard me. He will not disregard you. Look at verse 4. And Jesus, what's the next word there? And Jesus, what? He did what? He answered them. Jesus is teaching. Hey, you know, we just had a great Matthew chapter 10. Let me tell you some more about that stuff. Disciples of John show up. Hey, John sent us. Are you the one? Should we uh, look for another? Jesus turns around and is like, Y'all hold on just one second. Watch what happens. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus teaching, teaching, teaching. Are you the one? He turns around. It's like, oh, okay, hold on. Uh, You get healed, and you start hearing, and you now see. You get up and walk. Okay, go tell John what you heard and what you saw. Go tell him that. He answered them. Some people think, if I come to Jesus with my doubt, he's going to be like, here we are again. Oh, the 54th time you've asked this same question. Thankfully, thankfully, he does not disregard you. He answers them. Some people think, oh, well, if I go to Jesus, uh, somehow, some way, he will push me away, disown me. Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Don't miss this. Disciples go away. He turns around to the people around him and says what? Watch this. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Just something blowing around out there? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? No. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. They're not out in the wilderness. That's what he's saying. Um, What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Jesus turns around and he speaks about John to these people. That is, he will not, not, only, not only not disregard you, but he's not going to disown you either. And that's really important because some of you think, if I go to Jesus with this kind of honest doubt, then he somehow is going to um, say, no, nah, man, you're not my guy anymore. Not just that, though. Look at what he says, verse 9. What did you go out to see? A prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Um, So 
it's, it's a matter here of John. Um, some of us come to Jesus, we're like, oh, here I am again, Jesus, I'm so sorry. Uh, I don't think I should be able to do the things that you've called me to. You, I am somehow disqualified from that. God, I, I, I've got these doubts, I can't really serve you, I can't really speak out, I can't stand up, I can't pray with this person or for this person, whatever, because um, you, you, you've disqualified me. Here is John in prison, and he speaks. He sends these messages, and then Jesus answers and speaks. And then Jesus turns around to the crowd and says, this is still the guy. This is still the guy. Um, the passage that I love, um, it shows up also later in Matthew, in Matthew 28, um, what you and I know is the Great Commission. It's powerful words from Jesus. He says, uh, we, we picked this up in um, in our, in our language around here, Jesus reigns over everything. Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 18 says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Nobody voted him in. He didn't need a Senate hearing. None of that. Jesus is in charge of the world. We say it. Jesus reigns over everything. Therefore, he says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything that I have commanded you. Okay, so on and on and on. We've got this powerful passage. The thing that I love about Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20 there, the Great Commission is, the context of it is, they go up on the mountain in Galilee, and then you have right before verse 18, surprisingly, comes verse 17. Here's what it says. And when they, the disciples, saw Jesus, they worshipped him, comma, but some doubted. So right in the middle of their falling before the risen Son of God, of them seeing nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet and this, this amazing thing that has happened that Jesus has said he was going to die and that he has said he would come back from the dead and he died and he came back from the dead. And the, right in the middle of all of that, right before he commissions him out and says, here's the most important thing that you need to know going forward. This is the great commission. They worshiped him and some doubted. Some of you are at the place where you think, man, my doubt has disqualified me. I'm telling you, it didn't disqualify John the Baptist. It didn't disqualify the people here in Matthew 28. If you're trying to lean in and go, oh, Jesus, I know I'm bringing this. Oh, God, but man, it just feels like you don't want me representing you right now. I'm telling you, this is the kind of people that God uses. At the very end of the Great Commission, he says, and I am with you even to the very end of the age. He has not distanced himself from you a bit. And John, in the same way, in, in uh, chapter Matthew 11, verse 11, says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's not going to distance himself from you. He speaks to that. Right, right at the core, I think, Right at the core of this question, of this doubt, goes something like this. God, are you really who you say you are? I want to believe that, God. Are you really who you say you are? When we come to him, if, if, if we don't let that push us away, but if instead we bring that question to him, we bring that doubt to him, you know what we find out? He is really who he says he is. And he is really ready to engage us as we work this out with him, as we talk to him, as we sit at the table with him, as we um, uh, speak to him, pray to him, worship him. He really is who he says he is, and he's willing to receive all of that from us. 
When we come to Jesus, he does a couple of things, and I think they're so incredible. Look back at verse 4, Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I think when you and I come to Jesus with our doubts, with this question, this primary question, God, are you really who you say you are? Jesus responds to John, and he often responds to us this way. Certainly it's true of me. That instead of saying, looking at you and going, yes, I am who I say I am. Why aren't we doing this conversation again? He paints a picture for John. What did he say? Go tell him what you hear, what you see. Lame walk, blind see, deaf hear, um, Lepers are cleansed, dead are raised up, the poor have good news preaching. He paints a picture. Why does he paint a picture? Because he wants it to stick with the disciples. This is not, let me just slap a Bible verse on this and we'll call it good. This is not, if you'll go memorize these three principles, everything will be better. This is not input on one side of the equation, output on the other side of the equation, spirituality. This is Jesus painting a picture to say, don't forget this. Why does he paint a picture? God, are you really who you say you are? Jesus is like, go tell them what you see and hear. Why? Because pictures stick. Pictures stick. Facts are important in clearing out roadblocks uh, to, uh, logically uh, to, to uh, make way for faith. That's all important. But it's pictures, man. Those, these pictures stick. And so Jesus says, go tell them what you hear, what you see. He paints this vision of life. Why? Because he's not trying to inform their heads. He's trying to inspire their hearts. He knows that this is an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the brain. It's not. Why does he know this? Because faith, the kind of faith that Jesus is trying to inspire in us, doesn't happen up here in our heads. It happens in our heart. Paul picks this up later. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, where he says this. Um, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe where? In your head? Where? Where? In your heart, in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Why? But for with the heart, one believes. It's in the heart that you believe and just justified. And with the mouth, one confesses there and is saved. So Jesus is saying, hey, I want to paint this picture, but I'm not just trying to stick extra facts inside of your brain that will somehow get pressed down and forgotten at some point. I'm trying to inspire your heart. I'm trying to go after your heart because it's there. It's there that faith really lives and really happens. So Jesus is painting this picture. Um, Whatever the cause of John's doubt, whatever all the stuff or something else, whatever the cause of John's doubt, the remedy was very clear. And And it wasn't relief. It wasn't freedom from prison. The remedy for John's doubt was a clearer picture of who Jesus was. Church family, listen to me. Some of you are in here this morning and you are barely in here. Like you're dragging the stuff with you. You came in and baggage and chains and locked down. Oh, if I could just get relief, I'm telling you, based upon the Bible here, I think Jesus wants to give you a clearer picture of who he is and let that be the thing that you walk out of here with. Folks, John died in prison. He was beheaded by Herod. It wasn't relief. It wasn't freedom. 
thing that Jesus did to address the doubts that John had. Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Jesus paints a picture to say, here's a clearer picture of me. Now, this is not a new picture. It's not. The stuff that Jesus quoted there in in, in verse 5 is stuff that Uh, is stuff from Isaiah chapter 61. So Jesus is pointing John with this picture that he's painting. He's pointing John back to the Bible. He wants John to know that, hey man, this is not some esoteric thing. Like this is real. And we've been talking about this for a long, 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 long time. uh, Isaiah 61. So it's not disconnected from the word of God. We know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's Romans 10, 17. It's no new picture. But it's a picture that Jesus paints in order to inspire um, John's faith. And so he follows that, not only painting a picture, but he also makes this promise in verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Happy, blessed, happy in God is the one who's not offended by me. Why would he say that? Because there would be some who would be offended by him, by the things that he says or the things that he does, by the actions that he takes um, uh, or the, uh, uh, the things that he's asking you and me for. In other words, he's saying, listen, there will be times where I call you to things, encourage you to things, put you in situations where you could say, oh man, this must not be right. This is not of God. And he said, I'm going to be in the middle of all of that. Blessed is the one who's not scandalized. by me." He makes this promise. And as you and I live the Christian faith, there's a couple of things uh, that are true as we hear his promises. Number one, his promises always invite our faith. They always invite our faith. They often, yes, collide with our doubts, but they invite our faith. He wants us. He wants us to, um, to step into this. God, are you really who you say you are? He's like, I promise I am. And then he wants us to lean further into him. But secondly, he also promises, the promises that he makes to us shine brightest when it's darkest, okay? And that's, that's crucial for some of you in here right now who are walking through some very dark times. I'm here to tell you today, blessed are those who are not um, offended by him, scandalized by him. In other words, the things that he said were true when it was daytime are true when it's dark. The things that he said were true on the mountaintop are true in the valley. And the things that he said that um, when things were going just like you wanted them to are true when they are not going just like you wanted them to. They're true all the time. All the time. So this morning I got up House is completely dark, up before everybody get the dog, we go walk in. At no point, though, at no point, at no point did I have to wonder where the couch was. Like, I navigated a perfectly dark house without wondering where the couch was. Do you know why? Because I knew where the couch was. Like, I knew that I had about five feet between the counter and the couch, right? Like, I had that kind of room. Why? Because I had seen the couch when? In the light. And because I had seen it in the light, I was able to navigate it in the dark. Church family, listen to me. The things that God has already said in the light are just as true in the dark. Nothing's moved. So if you bring doubt, you're struggling. Oh God, I want to see this. I want to be a part of this. I want to, but man, I'm struggling. Are you really who you say that you are? Don't doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Don't do it. His promises shine brightest, actually, when it's darkest. And I don't think there's anywhere that this is more clearly portrayed than the cross. Jesus promised, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise. 
And his disciples are like, man, we don't know anything about that. What does he do? He paints a picture. He paints a picture. You and I, we come to this question, oh God, are you really who you say you are? And he points us consistently to the cross. The cross is the picture that he paints for us to say, this is who I am. I am who I say that I am, and this is the kind of person I am. This is the kind of God I am. The God who would give himself for us. The God who would sacrifice himself for us. The God who would take on our sin so that we wouldn't have to bear it. The God who would sacrifice his son um, and, and let him carry our sin so that we don't have to carry it forever. The God who would come in pursuit of you and me in all of our doubts, in all of our brokenness, in all of our trouble, in all of our struggle, and in all of our sin. He comes after you and me. The picture that he paints for us is the cross. And the promise that he makes for us is this. If you come to me, I will receive you. All of your doubts, all of your struggles, all of your sin, all of your issues. If you come to me in faith, I will receive you. Nowhere is this more clearly portrayed than the cross of Jesus. So we come to communion. And when we come, we will remember. There are tables, I just want you to know, set up all around, five tables set up around the worship center. And we're going to come to God. And what I encourage you to do, spiritually speaking, is come to Him and bring all of your stuff, whatever that may be. Your questions, your doubts, your struggles, your things, your obstacles, your burdens, the things that you feel like are chaining you, you bring all of that to Him. God, are you really who you say you are? And what you're going to find is a little piece of wafer here that's a reminder, a reminder that the body of Jesus was broken for you and for me to, answer, to be a part of that answer. Yes, I am who I said I am. And you'll take a cup and you'll drink and you'll remember the blood of Jesus was poured out for me so I don't have to be separated from God. In fact, nothing now can separate me. Anybody who's a follower of Jesus in here is welcome to participate. We as a church family, when we do it this way, I just want to remind you, church, uh, if you got somebody around you, it looks like they may be uh, flying solo today, you can just ask them, hey, can you want to come with us, be a part of our family, or maybe uh, they're going to struggle getting there. You just ask them, hey, can I get that and bring it back? Let's just take care of one another like that. Let's pray. We'll have deacons at each of the tables. If you need somebody to pray with, they would love to pray with you. Let's pray together and then we'll celebrate communion, okay?